This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff. The weather's a little milder this week. I'm sure that's come as a relief to many of you. Might have drained a bit of soil moisture the weather last week, but hopefully it helped control the Green Bridge. And coming up soon on the show, I'm going to explain how technology like Shazam and Netflix could work their way into plant breeding. It's like a, uh, a Lego building instruction that tells you what you have to put together to get to that final you know, the picture that you see on the outside of a Lego pack, that's your future, that's your future variety. There's a lot of work going into uh, plant breeding and the plant breeders of the future are going to need to be data scientists as well. I'll explain more on that. And with potatoes being harvested, is the shortage over? We'll look at that in a moment. But first up today, the first commercially available electric ute is on a tour of Australia to show off the technology to farmers. But with just a 330-kilometre range and a one-tonne towing capacity, experts say this EV ute isn't up to the job on most Australian farms. However, the ute signals a change to the power that will drive Australia's farm equipment in the future. Warwick Long spoke with Ben White, who tests farm equipment for the Condina Group, about what the technology has to offer. Yeah, well, look, it's probably one of the, the easier things to uh, electrify, if you like, uh, on farm, and I think uh, you know it's great to see the the, the technology, and, and even if it's a, a quite a base model, um, uh, as as was pointed out in in uh, your little drive there, Warwick. I think uh, it's good to see the tech there, and and to see you know what will probably be the first step in an evolution of, of vehicles in the future. Um, but of course, you know uh, we really need something that's equivalent, that's going to be fit for purpose, and and uh, and when we say it's equivalent, it's got to be as good as or if not better than uh, than the, the current vehicles we've got, uh, with regard to range, capacity, and and uh, and towing uh, ability as well. So all those things need to come into play. And particularly a one-ton towing capacity that's going to to lead to a shorter driving experience when there's only 330 kilometres in an yeah. ideal world doesn't sound like will it would entice many farmers. Is that fair to say? Oh, look, I think that's fair to say. Probably the bigger issue is that uh, that particular vehicle is only uh, a two-wheel drive, so it's only rear-wheel drive. Uh, I would think that most cockies would be looking for um, for something that's four-wheel drive. Um, you know, as uh, as you know, some of your, your text messages uh, alluded to earlier, we want to be able to drive through the paddock. We want to go and check stock. We want to be able to you know, carry loads to and from town. So, you know, um, again, it comes back to that equivalence and making sure that we've got something that's uh, that's going to do the job that we needed to do. So with your testing ad on going through the things in your mind you'd like to see become available, what are the things that you're looking forward looking for in an EV ute in the future? Oh, look, I think, you know, it's been mentioned, the range is a big issue and, and we do big Ks in Australia um, and, and uh, probably more than anyone would do in, in Europe, say, on-farm or, or probably even in the US. Um, so, you know, range is a, is a big deal. And anyone who's driven a, an EV, and I have uh, have a few times, uh, range anxiety is a real thing. You know, so you're continually looking at the, at the gauge and um, 
I guess, planning where your next charge point's going to be. And so there's a, there's a little bit of, uh, uh, I guess, anxiety and, and also planning that needs to be built into that. And that's OK. That's that's part of uh, what we need to do. Uh, once that range sort of is equivalent to what we've got from a diesel perspective, uh, you know, if we're getting sort of seven, eight hundred, nine hundred 900 k's to a, a, a charge, uh, as we would a, a tank of, of fuel, and you know that probably will dissipate a little bit. So yeah, range is a big one. Towing uh, towing capacity is is, um, is important, and uh, and certainly that was uh, mentioned. But I think uh, you know there's there's obviously other vehicles out there that uh, from an EV perspective, and the Ford uh, F-150 Lightning is is a good example. It's got about four and a half ton towing capacity. Um, so you know there are other options out there that uh, that probably do tick a few more boxes. But as I say, it's good to see the tech here and the conversation starting. Yeah. So we've had. Uh, electric quads, electric side-by-side vehicles. Now there's electric utes. Where yeah. are electric vehicles going for in agriculture? Do we have electric tractors yet? Yeah, look, there are a couple uh, on the market. Um, there's a, a, a few being brought to market uh, in the next uh, couple of years. They're all pretty small, though, Warwick. You know, we're, we're sort of talking, um, you know, that 100-horsepower equivalent sort of size, which is good for horticulturalists and and, uh, and smaller uh, area operators who aren't requiring that, that big power for for, say, tillage or, or uh, any you know, heavy-duty sort of work. Uh, so, you know, they're out there. Fant have got one. Deer are bringing one uh, next year. So, you know, people should keep an eye out for that. I think one of the interesting things that, that um, you know, this, this all sort of points towards is that, you know, the, the, electric, uh, the electrical drive systems is, is probably what's key to all of this and, and, um, and the development of those in an EV sense uh, whether that's you know uh, wheel motors on tractors etc et or, or components or even utes, uh, you know the development of that probably will will see, I guess, the face of what we're driving, uh, regardless whether it's tractors or utes, uh, change in the future purely because you know we might move to a, a, a I guess a, uh, an intermediate stage where we're doing diesel electric, so you know diesel engine uh, driving electric wheel motors, you know, and that's that's pretty exciting because they offer uh, a lot of the same sort of benefits and you know, zero. Uh, RPM uh, still with 100% torque and, and also you know high levels of efficiency in terms of um, power transmission. So yeah, I think that's um, that's exciting. Be interesting to see where the technology goes from here. That was Ben White, who tests farm equipment as a research engineer for the Kandinan Group, and he was speaking with Warwick Long, and that he is doing a bit of a tour of Australia to show off its technology. So you might be able to catch it somewhere. To plant breeding now and Shazam, Netflix, Squid Game. These concepts might seem a world away from plant breeding, but the artificial intelligence they are using isn't. Syngenta's head of group strategy, Alexander Tokarts, addressed Evoke Ag last week in Adelaide and he explained how the plant breeders of the future will also have to be data scientists as well. Breeders in, the, in history have been known as artists, artisans more than as scientists because they had the capability to look at a plant and just by judging what they saw, make a call whether or not that could be a good next generation. They always had to test it and therefore get data on seeing whether they were correct, but a lot of the judgment was just based on, we call it the phenotype. So what data science has brought into this is that you, first of all, we, we now understand the genotype much better. We understand the genome of the plant and we're able to connect the genome with how it's going to come out as a plant so we can model it with a computer and then we can use the computer to predict. If you do a cross with a thousand plants, as a breeder, you'd have to look through all the thousand to decide. Now we can just do a genetic analysis and let the computer decide which of those have the highest chance of success. That's just one example. 
There's another example which is as important, which is understanding the environment in which the plant grows. So any genetic, any, any crop is, needs to be uh, targeted to the environment in which it grows because it's exposed to the climate, exposed to the weather. And you have very different genetics working in very different climates. So today we have the ability to, uh, to look at a climate in a certain area and look anywhere on the, on the planet where you have a similar climate. Uh, so we can model the climate. Um, and by that, we can anticipate where a certain genetics, where a certain plant would perform well and where it wouldn't be appropriate. What does this mean for the production of new varieties and seeds across any spectrum of, of plant? What, do, what does this mean for plant breeding going forward then? So we call it predictive breeding. So you basically can predict in advance what, how the plant will perform. And I'm using the example of uh, Netflix just to demonstrate that. So when you watch Netflix, you often get these predictions of you like this, hence you will also like that. So it's the same technology that's behind that. And what it does, it allows you to be faster in one breeding cycle. So basically your next generation of improved plants with, say, a higher yield or a better adaptation to a certain climate, a lower use of resources, you can faster get to that next generation. And when you think about the challenge we face from a uh, you know, feeding, uh, growing population perspective, if you think 30 years out to 2050, if we really want to hit zero carbon from agriculture, we need to replace 600 million hectares of land that would be required to grow all the extra food that the humanity will, will require. We'll have to replace it by higher performing varieties. And that, that acceleration of yield gain, it needs to be faster than what we've seen in the past. So the only way to get there, if you can go through the cycle quicker and if you can go more targeted through the cycle. So that's basically how data science helps us to you know, close that land gap. Are there drawbacks, though, to purely using algorithms and AI to do this and perhaps taking out some of that human element to it? Well, we don't take it out because the person who creates the model and runs the model is still a breeder. But the breeder today, compared to the breeder in the future, is a plant, a plant scientist but also a data scientist. So he or she needs to be able to on one hand understand the plant and understand how the plant and the environment and the management interconnects but on the other hand be able to run those models so i don't see that we're losing anything and the fact that we can do it faster and we can do it more targeted will also allow us to do much bigger leaps forward so the next level of sophistication is what we call prescriptive breeding so you basically design a plant that doesn't even exist today and then you work backwards to what you need to do from where you are today. So when you think about Netflix, the equivalent would be Netflix Originals, where basically Netflix analyzes all its 200 million user uh, viewing behavior and creates a movie that appeals to the highest number of people just on the basis of all the data they have. And that's a capability that we want to introduce into breeding as sort of the next phase. And that will allow us to create plants that have capabilities that uh, you wouldn't find today. Um, hence, you, because you can't find them today, you wouldn't know where to start. But if you have this prescriptive capability, you can sort of simulate it and you can go all the way back to what you have today 
and it's like a it's like a uh, a Lego uh, a Lego building instruction that tells you what you have to put together to get to that final you know the picture that you see on the outside of a Lego pack that's your future that's your future variety and you get an instruction how you get there and and that all supported by data science does this require genetic modification or can this be done through conventional breeding no all of what i described is conventional breeding because you're working with the genetic material that's in the plant and even in the traditional breeding or the or the uh, predictive or prescriptive breeding now we have more tools than we used to have in the past so in the past you did a cross and you did a selection so you basically relied on what came out of the cross by by nature by random today we're able through gene editing to work with the uh, genetic pool in the plant but to be very precise to switch on or off certain genes to change genes we're all working with the material that's in the plant with the genetics that's in the plant so there's nothing being added um, but through the through the capability of editing in combination with sort of the traditional crossing you can you can actually create new plants with new characteristics uh, and are still fully natural. What I want to add is, if you're a plant scientist, I think it's a fascinating time to get into the subject right now because we're literally at a point where all that computer technology, all that genomic understanding that we've been developing is coming into the space. Uh, so, you know, I think this just opens up a whole new avenue for the next generation that wants to get into this and you're doing something good for the planet uh, on the side. Syngenta's Head of Group Strategy, Alexander Tokarts, speaking there at the Evoke Ag Conference that was on in Adelaide last week. It is 18 minutes past 12. Afternoons with Sonia Feldhoff. Train up a, a dog called Nessie, who's an English Springer Spaniel, to find foxes and fox dens around the beaches around our hooded plover nests. Foxes are, are a proclaimed pest under the Landscapes uh, Act and it's actually the, the obligation of landholders to control foxes on their property. But uh, we're working with local councils and uh, national parks. Afternoons on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Weather's up next, but in the meantime, more and more South Australian farmers are looking at putting in legumes and a project being funded by the GRDC is hoping to close the yield gap. The project aims to address the current 40% yield gap between an average grain legume yield and water-limited yield potential. Researchers also want to support growers with legume-growing practices to get the best out of the crop. Tanya Morgan is the Program Manager with Mallee Sustainable Farming, who's also been involved and says that a lot more farmers are looking to legumes. Yeah, so this uh, GRDC investment is really honing in on improving grain legume production to close the economic yield gap and maximise the farming system's benefits. And in a way, it's sort of a bit of a follow-on from the the previous GRDC investment where um, there was a a focus on research, but then there was also a focus on extension. So farmers would get together and discuss specific issues with researchers and agronomists. And it was called Pulse Check. I think a lot of people might remember that. So this next investment is sort of taking that one step further, implementing a range of hub and spoke sites across the southern region and, um, yeah, bringing that in with some extension that once again gets farmers, researchers, advisors together to discuss the outcomes and 
hopefully improve grain legume production across the board. Is this because a lot more farmers are looking at putting in in legumes? I think so. Um, I'm based in the Mallee myself and we've seen a massive increase in grain legume production over the last 10 years. And that really comes from having to have that break crop, which, you know, benefits the whole farming system in general, Um, the the nitrogen input and and just being able to, you know, really target good agronomy with a break crop. But also the fact that the varieties that are now available are just so much better suited to a whole range of different uh, environments and farmers are really reaping the rewards. And these grain legumes are quite often very high-value crops as well. So there's just so many different benefits to having them in the system, and it just brings the profitability and sustainability of the whole farming practice. It just raises the bar there. You touched on this a little bit, Tanya, but what's the, the project's main aim? I guess it, it comes down to what is... Um, it's trying to tackle the issues that farmers are dealing with. So... A lot of it is around improving agronomic practices, uh, maybe doing some testing around the use of herbicides or uh, time of sowing and uh, variety selection and uh, weed management and testing that, adapting that to the different environments. Uh, So because it runs across all of South Australia, we've got low rainfall, medium rainfall, high rainfall, they're all going to have different issues and it's really just working with the growers in those regions to work out what their key focus is and just try and um, nail some of the issues there. As you said, you've, you've got uh, sites set up right across the state, but what's the difference between the project's hub sites and a, a spoke site? Yeah, a hub site is is a bit more intensive research. So there there might be just a few more trials going on there. They might be a bit more complex in nature, probably really um, honing into the farming systems components of it, whereas a spoke site might just be looking at one or two issues. So that they're just a bit more of a basic trial, still a trial though, uh, and just focusing on one or two key issues, whereas a hub site will, will get into the real nuts and bolts of, you know, some legume agronomy or some, some herbicide issues or, yeah, and there'll, there'll just be more to see at those sites. It might take in some more varieties as well. What do you think are some of the, the key issues that farmers might face that might be a hurdle to get more into to legumes? Yeah, well, we've been asking them. Part of the um, monitoring and evaluation with the project is is making sure that we keep in touch with farmers annually and we try and work out what their key issues are and tackle those. So some of the things that are coming out are are definitely herbicides, um, how to improve just herbicide systems approach across the different varieties, um, looking at legume agronomy, so time of sowing, sowing densities, uh, nutrition might be a key issue. Um, then there's other things uh, that focus on that focus around disease management, and other things like risk. So, uh, do I sow early because of I want to get a good yield outcome, or do I hold off because I might have a frost risk? So it, it's really looking at that local adaptation of some of those key issues. And what's the time frame of this this particular project? So this project commenced in um, 2021 and it will finish up in 2025. So we've got a really good crack um, to have some long-term trial data come out of this and we'll be compiling it also across the regions. So I mentioned before that we're looking at low, medium and higher rainfall work that's been happening. We're hoping to extend that across the board so all the the low rainfall research will be available to all the low rainfall farmers, all the medium 
um, and and so on and so on. So it will all be brought together in, in one place, and um, yeah, there'll just be lots of access to ongoing discussion, more researchers, um, and other content that come, that is created along the way. Tanya Morgan, the Program Manager with Mally Sustainable Farming, speaking with Brooke Nindorf. We've got more to come on the Country Hour in the next half hour, including you'll catch up with a relatively regular beekeeper who is uh, hanging up his hives, for want of a better way of putting it, and he's got a lovely story to tell about how he got into it and how he's made the most of his beekeeping over the years. That's coming up in the next half hour. But first, we'll find out what's happening with weather. Senior forecaster Mark Anlack joins me. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Well, what a difference a week makes. Like this time last week, there were warnings galore. We were hunkering down. Air conditioning was running like crazy. Maybe not quite at this stage, but it certainly ramped up through the week. But this week's very mild. How are things looking? Very much settled across the across the state uh, this week. And yes, we did have that change come through at the weekend and dropped temperatures quite significantly, particularly for the southern half of the state. Um, what we have now is basically a high-pressure system southwest of Perth, extending a, a quite a strong dominant ridge to the over the waters south of of our state. Um, as a result, we maintain a southeasterly wind regime across our uh, across South Australia. Now, those southeasterly winds are considerably milder, and we have temperatures back in the uh, sort of low low to mid twenties through southern agricultural areas, under a bit of low cloud as well. Um, as we move further north, the temperatures are more like mid to high 20s. But in the far north, those milder southeasterly winds haven't quite reached the far northeast corner. So it's still very hot in the far northeast. And as we speak, I think um, Moomba's around about 35, 36 degrees. And um, over the coming days, those southerly winds will extend further northwards and eventually make it through to the northeast corner. So by Wednesday, I imagine they'll have some uh, cooler conditions or milder conditions with a three at the front um, uh, for the next uh, from about Wednesday onwards. But for the southern parts of the state, this high-pressure ridge remains the dominant feature and very little change over the coming days. So we can expect southeasterly winds and uh, fresh afternoon sea breezes across coastal parts of the state um, and even at times may even pick up a light shower activity about southern coastal uh, districts as well. So um, at this stage, it looks like we'll maintain this southeasterly wind regime until probably Thursday or Friday, at which stage a high, the high-pressure system will just quickly scoot across the south um, through Bass Strait and into the Tasman Sea by Saturday. And uh, with that, Winds will turn northerly, so Saturday, Sunday might be a touch warmer with the winds shifting a bit more northerly. Um, but that is followed by yet another change. Uh, it looks like a sort of a southwesterly wind change, which will probably move across western parts of the state on Sunday before tracking across uh, into the east during Monday. So at this stage, pretty stable conditions, uh, mild in the south. generally warm to hot conditions in the far north, partly cloudy in the south, mostly sunny in the north, and that'll continue right through to Friday. In terms of rainfall amounts, not expecting a huge amount. Um, There will be the odd shower at times over the sort of southern coastal fringes, probably most likely during Wednesday at this stage, Uh, and with that, falls of a couple of millimetres, you know, uh, if, if you're lucky type thing and uh, places like southern Fleurieu Peninsula around Victor Harbour, Strathalbyn, um, southern coast of the lower, uh, lower southeast coast, um, 
Kangaroo Island might might be the odd odd spot picking up maybe five to ten, uh, sorry two to five millimeters. But uh, for the most part, don't expect too much. Uh, cloudy skies and and it might look threatening at times, but for the most part it'll be it'll be dry across the south. So uh, all in all, Cassie, very settled conditions and uh, mainly dry through much of the state. Thanks for that, Mark. Now. Was this quite a late heat wave? I know we've had heat waves into March, but at the end of November, was it quite hot, late to get this hot weather or is it still well, pretty standard? Probably, people probably forget that just after Christmas we had some very hot weather as well. So uh, not quite heat wave conditions, but certainly temperatures in the 40s for, for a day or two. Um, so, yeah, we have had some hot weather earlier in the season, mm. but... Um, Probably no no real not difference in terms of February. Unusual. Yeah, no, not really. Oh, just thought I'd ask. Thanks for that. Mark Analek there from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be mostly sunny tomorrow. Overnight, the temperatures dropping to 19 to 24, but the daytime temperatures still getting rather warm, up to 40 degrees. The lower western will be mostly sunny as well. Overnight there, getting down to 13 to 17, but during the day, the temperatures will reach the low to mid-30s. I'm Cassie Huff. It's coming up to 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, I'm so glad you could join me today. I'm Cassie Huff, if you've just joined. Australia's frozen chip shortage over summer caused some panic in some areas. It made cafes and fast food venues quite creative at the time in how they dealt with the issue. Now South Australia's potatoes are starting to be harvested though. So is there going to be a bit of a reprieve on the supply side of things, particularly where hot chips are concerned because they were the area where there was a bit of concern? It's, it's a good and a bad thing about potatoes. If you've got too much wheat, too much wool, too much iron ore, it just goes in a big stockpile and it can haunt you for the next five years. But potatoes being perishable, you've got this enormous glut, you know, maybe in the next three months. But, you know, six months after that, those potatoes have all, you know, they've only got a limited life and that glut has sort of cleared through and you're on a clean slate and away you go again. Have you basically been able to get your hands on the potatoes that you needed or are you still concerned over the lack of hot chips? You can let me know. Text zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Also, a company in Western Australia, South West, has been given the green light to start trialling magic mushrooms to treat depression. So I'll take a bit of a look at that soon. But first, here's Matt Coleman with the latest in news. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the outgoing head of the Child Protection Department has confirmed that pregnant girls are currently being cared for by the system. In 2020, it was revealed that two teens became pregnant while in state care, with two pedophiles sentenced within months for the offences. Appearing before a parliamentary committee today, Cathy Taylor said fewer than five girls in the system are pregnant. 250 townhouses and low-rise apartments are set to be constructed as part of Adelaide's Morfordville Racecourse redevelopment. The SA Jockey Club says the $350 million upgrade will include a community plaza, hospitality vendors, a tavern and a supermarket. Some of the proposed residential properties will overlook racing events. And a new tourism campaign has been launched to help revive the Riverland after the flooding crisis. The Premier has announced more than 25,000 vouchers will be released over three this year. The vouchers will be used for experiences and accommodation. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. 
As Australia comes out of a hot chip shortage, will there be enough potatoes to go around this year? Potato farmer Terry Buckley has started harvesting crisp potatoes last week on his farm outside of Mount Gambier, and he says early signs point to a potentially lower harvest yield. Well, we're underway. We're doing crisping potatoes for sending to Adelaide. Quality's very, very good, and uh, but our yield, I don't think, is where it needs to be. It's going to be a bit light on, and I get a feeling that's going to be the theme for the season a bit. And why do you think it will be the theme, and any ideas on what might be causing it? Well, we finished up planting a lot of potatoes a month later than we should have, uh, as we as we normally do, and in like in Ballarat over there, they're like six weeks behind where they should be. So it depends now how the autumn goes, and already you're getting these quite damp mornings at times, and when you get that sort of thing, it's hard to keep your crop growing. It tends to want to senesce and die, or the target spot of blight gets in, and so we need a long, summery sort of an autumn to finish off the crops that are later, so... And do you think this is just your farm or farms across the region? Uh, well, I've heard that like some of the early crops further north, which, you know, because they can get some very harsh weather uh, heat-wise up there. So it's probably been a bit more mild than they would expect up there. And they've turned out some very, very good results. So it's going to be, I think it's going to be a year of mixed stories a little bit. You know, we've just come off of a hot chip shortage. Do you think there will be enough crisp potatoes to stop a shortage in that area coming up? Uh, I think we'll be all right in Australia. I don't think we're going to run short. Crisping's a bit different because they harvest potatoes all year round. But the French fry situation, it never shows up until December next year because you'll have enough as you harvest now fresh. But if you finish up not getting your stores completely full, the problem happens November, December. And that's what happened this year and that's when you'll see it, if it's going to happen again. Hopefully it won't. Are there enough potatoes being grown in Australia or are we just growing just enough? Pretty much just enough, and that's getting worse because we tend to be losing growers that, you know, the money's not working for them or they're getting old or various other reasons. There are other things you can do now that pay, you know, as well as potatoes. So there's a lot of reasons why people are sort of moving out of it a bit. But the other fairly significant issue is all of this variety right stuff with varieties of potatoes. So if you see an opportunity coming, you really can't get the access to the seed because the the potatoes are attached to the processing factories or the washing people and you can't just go and buy them without they let you buy them. Then you can't plant them thinking you might get a big price at the end because you really can't have them unless you have a contract for them. So very little potatoes has now grown where people think there might be an opportunity. We don't really plant anything that we don't have a contract signed for. And then periodically when you have too many, you finish up getting nothing for them. So you tend not to plant excess. Most years it balances out. Someone's got a few too many for everyone that's got a few too little. But we're tending to be on the cautious side that you're more likely to run short than oversupply. And has that always been the case, Terry, that growers are growing just to contract? Or has this been kind of developing in this way for a while? Uh, it's been developing this way for quite some time. and Yeah, no, growers were much more sort of flexible than they are now. I've never got much into it, but some of the old timers go, oh, I think the weather's a bit funny and this is something different. I'll put in an extra paddock just in case because I think I might do all right out of them. And that's what used to happen. Now it's got, well, I suppose, more, more controlled and more professional. 
and there's been a couple of bad experiences in the last sort of five years with people getting landed with potatoes that didn't have a home and so now one, no one really takes a risk on it. They're so expensive to grow. Like you cannot afford to have potatoes left that you can't get a home for because they are so expensive to grow now. And what do those people generally do if they've got too many potatoes? Well, we that's why we do some export product because periodically if we've got too many they're able to find a home somewhere in Asia for them. So that gets us out of trouble, but lots of people don't do not do export potatoes. You hope that the processing companies will be able to take them somewhere in the year, but ultimately you dig them up and feed them to your sheep or cows. It's, it's a good and a bad thing about potatoes. If you've got too much wheat, too much wool, too much iron ore, it just goes in a big stockpile and it can haunt you for the next five years. But potatoes being perishable, you've got this enormous glut, you know, maybe in the next three months. But, you know, six months after that, those potatoes have all, you know, they've only got a limited life and that glut has sort of cleared through and you're on a clean slate and away you go again. Potato farmer Terry Buckley speaking with Elsie Adamo there about the situation on his property. He seems uh, to think that he's getting a slightly lighter yield. It'd be interesting to see what that means for potatoes later in the year when the, the rubber hits the road a little when it comes to supply. I'm just interested to know how you go in getting your potatoes these days. Fresh potatoes have largely been in reasonable supply, but the uh, the, the French fry, the, the um, frozen potatoes, uh, have been a little bit tougher to get your hands on. How are you going these days? Text 0467 9228 or phone 1300 991. I'd be interested to hear how you are finding things. But we'll head to Western Australia now because a company in the southwest has been given a green light to start trialling magic mushrooms to treat depression. As Georgia Hargraves explains, if everything goes to plan, the company will also be the first in Australia to legally grow this sort of mushroom. Here's more on this. Magic mushrooms have been used for thousands of years for medicinal and ceremonial purposes by Indigenous people throughout the world. In recent times, they're probably more known because of their use at festivals and parties. But magic mushrooms are a psychedelic drug that contains an ingredient called psilocybin. And some scientists believe it could be used to help treat certain types of mental illness. UWA Professor Sean Hood is the principal researcher for what will be WA's first clinical trial using psilocybin to help people who have treatment-resistant depression. He says patient welfare will be the number one priority. Look, I think uh, with any new medication, part of our job is to minimise any of the risks and to do it in a controlled and careful environment. Hence, the way we are dosing in this particular study is we have two well-trained clinical psychologists that will be with the patients throughout the whole day of the dosing to follow their dosing and any responses they have to that. It'll be undertaken in a in a set environment at Perkins um, South Hospital Facility. They'll be monitored throughout that whole time. We, of course, have um, contingencies for any adverse reactions or any emergencies, etc. So, yes, it'll be highly controlled. This is a novel medication that we're really understanding that works for depression, but we, you know, we've struggled really to see what the role of these medications are. And part of our job is to see how this can be safely administered to patients in a way that can be replicated in other clinics, um, hopefully down the line. The company sponsoring this clinical trial is Reset Mind Sciences, which is based in WA's southwest. CEO Sean Duffy says they'll be importing the psilocybin for this research from Canada, but the long-term goal is to produce and cultivate the drug right here in Western Australia. 
And if that happens, they'll be the first company in Australia to legally grow magic mushrooms. There's two ways you can source psilocybin for use in in a medical sense. One is synthetically produced, so so manufactured in a lab. They're just the, the molecule that's within the magic mushrooms. Or the other way is to grow mushrooms and then extract the psilocybin from the mushrooms. So we are, as a company, we will be growing mushrooms with a view to producing pharmaceutical grade psilocybin. But we're not ready to do that yet. But for the moment, we'll be purchasing synthetic psilocybin from Canada for use in our trial. Okay. How long will it be, do you think, before you'll be ready to start actually commercially growing these mushrooms in, in WA? Uh, well, we will be growing them within weeks. We have built a special purpose grow room for the mushrooms, which will be housed at an undisclosed location, but um, that we have all the licensing in place to do that. So the grow room is in its final commissioning stages now and will start operations within the coming weeks. Then once we have uh, started growing mushrooms, it's a separate piece of work to start then extracting the, the psychoactive ingredient, psilocybin, and producing that to pharmaceutical grade to, uh, to the TGA standards. And, you know, just like with medicinal cannabis, I'm sure there are a few people out there that are pretty resistant to this idea. What would you say to them? Look, to be honest, I see increasingly less people resistant to it. I think that, um, you know, mental health issues are so common, so commonplace. Everyone I speak to either has personal experience with mental health issues or is only one removed from a family member or, or close friend that does. So... I think a lot of the way mental health conditions are treated at the moment is is with antidepressants and they are a treatment that just manages the symptoms. It doesn't get to the underlying cause. So there's a lot of pent up demand out there from people to explore other treatments that might be able to, to deal with the underlying causes of mental health. So certainly with the weight of clinical evidence, and I, and I would stress that um, the treatment in this regard has got to be evidence-backed. It's It's got to be scientifically validated, but Certainly the work done to date indicates that there's great promise in that regard. Reset Mind Sciences CEO Sean Duffy. Magic mushrooms are not the only psychedelic drug that's been talked about in the mental health space recently. Eternity Housen is the co-founder and CEO of Enlightened Mental Health, which is Australia's first online mental health practice which focuses on psychedelic harm reduction and integration services. She's also spent 14 years working in the military, so she's passionate about helping people with depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And she believes psychedelics could really help people who are resistant to other treatment options. It's common that a lot of defence personnel have complex PTSD, depression and anxiety, and often they don't get the results they want from the treatments from different antidepressants. And so there's alternate pathways out there, and one of them is um, ketamine-assisted treatment. So we've helped pave the way for many defence members to receive that, as well as DVA clients as well. But what we're finding is that the general population and it doesn't matter if they're defence or ex-defence, um, people are taking the, the mental health into their own hands and they are trying psychedelics in a recreational setting for their own mental health treatment. But I think in terms of what needs to change is it would be great if the general public could start recognising that these uh, substances um, have the potential to be a therapeutic medicine. These substances, if they're proven to be effective in a clinical trial, it may not be just one or two people here or there that are offered these substances. There's so many people out there who have what we call treatment-resistant depression or PTSD, and they would benefit from having access 
to these substances, which is why the clinical trial is so important because we need to just get the ball rolling um, so that we're closer to offering access to these substances in a very clinical and controlled manner. I think the general public as well will benefit from understanding that these substances are not going to be freely available. They would only be giving out, given out in a clinical setting by a number of doctors with therapists there, and it's unlikely that we'll get to the stage where patients can take it home. It's always going to be in a controlled environment. Enlightened Mental Health CEO, Eternity House, and ending that report by Georgia Hargraves. And there's more on that online at abc.net.au slash rural. Coming up, given that Pride has taken over Australia with the World Pride taking place in Sydney at the moment, we thought we might look at the experience of farmers coming out as well as gay or lesbian, uh, what their experience is like. That's coming up in the next 15 minutes. It's a quarter to one. You know your history, but maybe not this history. A whole different history than what I was taught at school. Join Zoe Coombs-Ma to explore the queer history of Australia. Oh, this should be fun. Each generation has its own story. There was a lot of fear. I felt like I was the only one. Spoiler alert. This queer history is not all rainbows. Queer Australia. Illegal. Legal. Legal. Starts Tuesday night, February 28 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. One of the Air Peninsula's best-known beekeepers is hanging up his bee suit after nearly 50 years. After what started as a hobby, Norm Pope has decided to retire from beekeeping. He went commercial with the profession in 1979 and over the years has seen many changes, including weather patterns and farming practices. With nearly 10 champion ribbons to the Pope's honey name from the Royal Adelaide and Sydney Easter show, Norm says now is the time to step back from the industry and Brooke Nindorf caught up with him about how he got into beekeeping. I guess I've had a real love for them since I've actually been a kid and I was an electrician, had a few hives as a bit of a hobby and a bit of a sideline and came that close to probably really did have honestly a breakdown and I found the therapy of working with bees really relaxed me and was far more enjoyable. They didn't have telephones, wasn't under the pressure and it just grew and grew and grew. But they were hard days uh, transitioning from electrical to beekeeping and uh, nearly went broke there at one stage. And uh, But it was worth it. We finally got there, Brooke. And, uh, <laughs> and the, the bees, like you said there, were close to that uh, breaking point. Did the, the bees sort of help you get, get through that? Absolutely. Being probably fairly flighty sort of a personality and um, people pleaser and um, high achiever, with bees you've got to relax. And if you handle them rough and carelessly and uptight, they'll sting you. Same as with any stock, this happens with horses as well. And so they helped me to actually deliberately make myself relax and it just sort of grew on from there and my love for the bees grew, which wasn't surprising because when I first started beekeeping, there'd actually been a hundred years, combined hundred years of beekeeping in my family between wow. uncles and distant relatives under the Pope name. So there's probably something genetic there, Brooke. <laughs> <laughs> and Pope's honey, did it take long to, to start getting into that and selling honey? Yeah, it probably took, um, I think, about eight or ten years or something, and we didn't even know what to call our honey, and we were selling at a place called Potato Place. And they said, what do you reckon we should call our honey? And they said, everybody comes in here asking for Pope's honey. Why don't you call it that? 
right, okay. So that's what happened and that's where it stuck. What have you noticed with changes since you started with the beats, Norm? There's a number of things actually, Brooke, and the first one I'm going to start off with is is the change in weather patterns. When we first started keeping bees in the late 70s, early 80s, you could get a sure gum, certainly two out of three years, you'd get a sure gum flow. And the same with water gum or blue gum, you'd nearly every year, in fact, every second year, but nearly every year you'd get a, you'd get a flow off that. <clears throat> Sometimes you'd get in one gully and not another. And then towards the end of the 80s, the flows became less and less consistent. And uh, I started moving my bees further north, actually. We used to work them up in the um, Port Lincoln Hills, um, Copio, Yolanda Flat and that, and I started moving further north, and that was, I found to be a lot more reliable. And eventually, I think the last really good sugar gum flow we had was 2000, uh, the year 2000. We've had a couple of smaller ones in between. We've had one blue gum flow in the last five years, and honestly, some of them have been 15, 20 years apart. And the growing seas are getting shorter. The creeks aren't running like they used to. Even the mallees now, if they do flower, often there's not nectar in them. And there's some years we could just leave our bees there for 12 months and as one flower cut out, another one would come in and another one would come in. And if we did have to shift them, we could go from one flow to another flow to another flow. And that's not happening now. How have you seen the change in agricultural practices? How has that affected what you've done with bees? Um, Broadacre farming has brought some big changes about there. Once upon a time, the farmers would grow a crop and then they'd leave that paddock go fallow and they'd grow some weeds in it and you could put your bees in that paddock or in the corner of a paddock. Now with broadacre farming, there's not a lot of spots to put your bees in the corners of paddocks. And sadly to say, even some of the road veg- roadside vegetation has been cleared. Not, and I, and I, don't, I don't want to get into that, but as broadacre farming gets bigger and bigger and they're using more and more chemicals, it has had a negative effect on beekeeping. <clears throat> in saying that, crops like vetch, beans and some of those other legumes they grow, we have benefited from them. But then on the side of the coin again, you've got sprays to contend with. So our whole practice has had to change, and we've had to have a lot more communication between farmers and um, the crop sprayers and that sort of thing, with Aerotech and that sort of thing. So it's once upon a time you put your bees there and say hello to the farmer and give them a bucket of honey. Now there's a lot more technology, a lot more communication happening. We're talking about change in agriculture practice too, Brooke. Um, now there's a lot more, not only pesticides, there's a lot more herbicides around too. And, and I can remember in the 80s, we'd go up to Port Neal and we'd work our bees this time of the year on the ice plant and on the Lincolnweed. And the bees would build up, we'd get a cash crop off and the bees would be really strong and then we'd put them onto sugar gum and get a good crop off that. And a lot of those weeds are gone now, for better or for worse, I don't know, but from a beekeeper's perspective, for the worse. And they were worth cash crop as in dollars off that crop, but also the crop that we would produce later on because we had good, strong colonies. And like beekeepers, we're funny. Like We like weeds. You know, there's potato weed, which was pretty good last year, build our bees up, wire weed, Lincoln weed, ice plant, all the things the farmers hate, <laughs> we love. And, and they've gone, A, because we're not getting summer rains, certainly not in the, um, up until a couple of years ago, and B, because of the herbicides that they're using because they suck the, the moisture out of the soil. So that's another thing that has changed too. So if there is a, a lack of weeds there, Norm, what do you do about supplementary feeding with the bees? Um, there's a couple of things. Um, you can just let the bees sit, but if you're preparing the bees for another flow, then we supplementary feed. And we can use sugar syrup that stimulates the queen's delay, but you can buy some patty mixes now, and there's a number of two or three companies in Australia that are making them, and you mix up these pollens, or artificial pollens. They use legumes. They used to use a lot of soybean flour. Now they're not using that now. And, they, and they've studied the pollens, and so these come very, very close to the natural pollens, and we feed those to the bees. That helps to 
to build up their protein. That keeps the queens laying and that can tick them over. But you can only do that for three generations of bees because it's not the same as ordinary pollen. But if there's some pollens coming in, then you can spin that out a bit longer for them. So supplementary feeding has particularly become very popular now in preparation for honey flows and for pollination. Norm, what are you going to miss about about your bees? Oh, (laughs) contacting the farmers saying hello to them, just getting out in the clean air and sometimes just opening up the hives and just really enjoying the, the buzzer, the buzzer, the bees, the nectar, the whole atmosphere. It's a therapy. It's like fishing. So uh, yeah, I will miss that. Selling the honey. We used to love the markets, Brooke. They were great fun. They were lively and it's tremendous. Port Lincoln retired beekeeper Norm Pope speaking with Brooke Nindorf and Sally from Happy Valley says it's fantastic to hear Norm Pope, the bee king. Thanks for your text there, Sally. Finally today, yeah, life on the land is pretty hard work, but it can be even harder for LGBTQIA plus people working in agriculture. For two passionate farmers in New South Wales, coming to terms with their sexuality was a difficult personal journey. However, after coming out as gay, they found support from their rural communities. Keely Johnson has this story. John Wright was born and bred a farmer. He runs a grazing property at Woodstock near Cowra in the New South Wales Central West. I um, am fourth generation um, in our family being on, on this farm, which is fantastic. Yeah, I've just always had a love for cattle, love for the beef industry, love for farming. John developed a particular interest in genetics and breeding after working as cattle manager at the Trangy Research Centre for several years. For the past two decades, John's been breeding a line of cattle he calls Bluey, a combination of shorthorn, Angus and Simmental genetics to improve feed efficiency. You know, the power of feed efficiency is, is really quite amazing and what it can do within the industry and what it can do to your breeding cattle. And one of the really exciting parts is that, you know, high feed converting animals produce less methane. So that's really a focus we're really starting to get into at the moment. And there's a lot of people who are very interested in that area, obviously. As a fourth generation farmer, his passion for working the land runs as deep as any other's. But at 28, he distinguished himself from most other farmers by coming out as gay. When I did come out, I had nothing but support from my family and my friends and my community. I'm sure there were people out there that weren't comfortable with the fact that I was gay, but those people just moved back. But he can attest the gay community in regional Australia can be hard to find. Yeah, look, I wouldn't call Cara the uh, gay centre of of, um, New South Wales or Australia. There certainly are other gay um, people around the town. You know, once I did come out, I I certainly um, burn a few litres of diesel driving backwards and forwards to to Sydney every weekend or every second weekend just to be in a community. But the draw was never strong enough to to make me leave the farm. The aesthetics of the surround, the love of, of caring for animals and looking after animals and you know, that gives me so much joy that I'm, there's no way I'm going to throw that away for anything. Although it has meant finding a partner in a small country town is a challenge. It does not dominate my life anymore and I'm concentrated on what I do and trying to be the, a good person and, and contribute and contribute to my industry if I can. I just want people to be able to, you know, experience life as they, they want to. And if there's people who are not staying in agriculture because they think they won't be accepted because of their sexuality, then that's really sad. And um, I think we're on the, on the road to improving that.
It's an experience Hunter Valley goat farmer Alex Berry can relate to. Like John, he doesn't want to be defined by his sexuality. He's a farmer first and foremost. Come on! So when I first came out, um, I was worried that I'd be shunned. Uh, completely not the case at all. I suppose I've copped more slack of being a goat man than being the gay man. Alex and his partner Brad Dillon own a 20-hectare property at Seam near Newcastle, where Alex runs a boutique goat dairy, while Brad, an equestrian rider, manages horses. Alex is determined to not be defined by his sexuality and rejects the stereotypical image of a gay man. The LGBT community actually kind of is very a daunting place for someone like myself. I never wanted to be like what the iconic gay man was supposed to be. Um, it, it scared me. Being who I am is is a farmer. I'm, I'm Alex. I, I go and look after goats. I, I, I go to work. I work hard. And I think that's a big part of being who you are is not trying to be someone else. You just, just be yourself. The pair are both from farming backgrounds. Their parents owned neighbouring dairy farms in the Hunter Valley. So back in 2007, my family basically um, were in drought. So we had to make a sustainable turnover. And so after a few uh, crunching numbers, my family came up with the idea and they said, yes, let's go and milk goats. And since then, they've sold the family farm. And um, my partner and myself, we uh, bought a small little acreage here in Seam. And we have 50 acres and we have a little boutique goat dairy. Initially, Alex was milking 200 goats, but has since downsized to focus on breeding and judging. I had an opportunity to go to America and I jumped at that chance. And basically, I fell in love with a breed called La Marches. They're an earless breed and we finally bought our first um, genetic material and uh, we finally got them here to Australia. So they're, they're higher in casein protein, so we get more yield of product. So instead of milking 200 goats, I only have to milk 20. And the cheesemaker gets the, the right amount of product to then on sell at farmer's markets. Yeah, no, they all need to be brought up and drenched and vaccinated. Yeah, they're looking good, but. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. The, um, Alex and Brad celebrated their 10-year anniversary this year. He says society is becoming more accepting of homosexuality with each generation. It's changed a lot in the last 10 years, I think. Um, and it's going in the right direction, obviously, but... You know, I, I take my hat off to those before us that had to do it a lot harder and, and be subject to, to hate. And it's, it's a tough gig to be, a, a, to, to be gay, man or woman, in, um, in any industry, let alone agriculture. But I think being subjected to a generic stamp is, is even tougher. Goat farmer Alex Berry ending that report by Keely Johnson. And uh, you can catch up on that story if you go to iView and check out Landline. There's more to see there or just go online to abc.net.au slash rural to find out more on anything that's happening in agriculture across Australia and South Australia. But that's all I have time for today. Sonia Feldhoff will be with you this afternoon after the World Today for the regional listeners. But uh, until then, news is coming up as it is approaching one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au.
Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.